0: Paranormal Tales from the Tower, this is the legacy of Mingo Jack, or the murder of Samuel Johnson. Most towns have their share of spooky folklore, oral history that tells of specters and ghouls who wander the night to frighten unwary travelers or to seek vengeance from some great wrong done them. Usually these stories are told in fun, to elicit a scare or to send a chill down a spine. Often these tales claim to have a basis in historical fact. Sometimes the historical fact is more frightening than the ghostly tale that's handed down. Some events are so disturbing in the way they reveal our past that the acts themselves haunt us years, decades, and even a century later. These acts, perpetrated by our ancestors, often loom like spirits demanding to be understood and remembered the murder of Samuel Johnson and how the town of Eatontown, New Jersey responded to it is just such an act. More than 125 years have passed and we are still haunted by the deed. It's not possible to correct the past but it is possible to honor it and to perhaps bring closure and peace even if we never fully understand it. In 1886, Monmouth County was a very difficult place to be an African American. Our contemporary experiences of racism and inequality are perhaps not sufficient to give full measure to the deep-seated racism that existed in the United States two decades after the conclusion of combat in the Civil War. Although, honestly, I don't know if that's true right now. Despite the end of the war and slavery being abolished, the scars of that peculiar institution were fresh and still very painful. Equality was not a settled argument, and the society that emerged from the Civil War was not utopia. Emancipation was not a destination that could be reached with a map and a cart. Instead, it was a process and one that would take many, many more decades to complete, if ever it was finished. Monmouth County, New Jersey, had become home to enslaved people. These people, isolated by virtue of their small numbers, had been gradually emancipated. There were people in Monmouth County, New Jersey, in 1886, who had been born slaves, and who had lived through the years of gradual emancipation and the Civil War. To many, these freed men would never be the equal of a white man. Racial distrust and incredibly virulent racism did not disappear at the end of the civil war and the rampant racism of some allowed for horrific acts to be perpetrated in the name of justice samuel johnson was a 77 year old man in 1886 he had been born a slave in monmouth county and had been owned by samuel laird of colt's neck being of slight build and being handy with horses johnson was trained to become a rubber in the stables of his master His affinity for the animals made him a natural choice when his master decided to race his horses in Philadelphia. Johnson was dubbed Mingo Jack because of his success riding a horse called Chief Mingo. Johnson was known for being an ornery person and for having great strength for his size. His life was not without turmoil and his character was not held in high esteem. He had several altercations with both men and women, including an instance when he was shot in the leg during an argument. It's important to note that many character assessments came after his death. He was a married man with four children and two stepchildren, and four of these still lived at home with Johnson and his wife. On March 5, 1886, something terrible happened in Eatontown. A 24-year-old, well-respected white woman by the name of Angelina Hartman was walking to her friend's house to return a pie dish. This was a common enough occurrence for most, but not for Angelina. See, Angelina was suffering from tuberculosis and spent most of her days indoors, resting in an attempt to gain her strength. On this particular evening, her parents believed she was healthy enough to partake of some outdoor exercise and allowed that she could walk the two miles to their neighbor's home and back. The fresh air, perhaps they thought, might do her good. The path between the Herbert house and their neighbor's house was winding and not often used. Unfortunately for Angelina, someone else was aware of the path. Quote, on Friday afternoon at 20 minutes to four, I left home to go to Jackson Brown's house, a mile away on a neighborly visit. I crossed the road, went through the frozen swamp and struck into the woods. When I was halfway to my destination, Mingo Jack came up behind me and struck me with a club on the head, back of my right ear. He also hit me on my shoulder with the club. Although stunned by the blows, I was not rendered unconscious. He then seized me by the throat and commenced choking me. He asked me if I knew Mingo Jack and told me that he lived in Eatontown. I knew him the moment I put my eyes on him, but was afraid that if I told him, he would murder me, and so I shook my head no. Quote. This was the information that was given in an interview the day after the attack and after Johnson's murder. The night before, immediately following this attack, Dr. Beach found Ms. Herbert in such a nervous state that he administered a heavy injection of morphine. He informed Squire Edwards that she had undoubtedly been assaulted. She then told in detail the story of Johnson's assault. The beating and rape of Angelina Hartman is one crime from that night. It was not the last committed in Eatontown that night, however. News traveled fast. And after speaking with his daughter and hearing her say that the name Mingo Jack had been mentioned, her father and the local constable, Liebenthal, went out to Samuel Mingo Jack Johnson's small cabin. They entered the home just as he and his family were sitting down to dinner. They immediately took him into custody. There was no arrest warrant, no reading of rights. He was simply removed from his kitchen table and taken to a 12 by 12 by 12 brick holding cell located in a field near the center of Eatontown. Constable Liebenthal left him there at 7 p.m. and went to a local shop. The New York Times reported that, quote, people talked of nothing else until someone asked if Mingo Jack had been arrested. The town wanted to know and walked en masse to the lockup that evening. It was also reported that, quote, Liebenthal conversed with his prisoner before leaving him for the night and said the Negro told him that he had heard the boys shout, that nigger ought to be hung, and we'll hang you before morning. But he guessed they wouldn't hurt him, end quote. And this decision would have dire consequences for Johnston, and later, for the constable himself. Men in a local tavern known as John Allen Saloon were heard to threaten the life of Samuel Johnston. As the evening progressed, the men started to gather at the holding cell. Eventually, sometime between 9 p.m. and 11 p.m., Samuel Johnson was murdered in the most violent and inhumane way imaginable. His facial features were so badly beaten that his eye ruptured. Not satisfied with beating him to death, these men decided to then hang him. Lynching is a uniquely American horror Defined in 1940 by anti-lynching proponents at a meeting in Tuskegee, Alabama, as, quote, there must be legal evidence that a person met his death illegally at the hands of a group acting under the pretext of service to justice, race, or tradition, end quote. Perpetrated primarily on black men. Lynching was a way for white men to prove their superiority and their dominion over African Americans. Sometimes black men who were accused of crimes against white women were murdered. Sometimes the crime was no crime at all, but only a social slight that needed public correction. New Jersey had not had a lynching in the 19th century until the men from Eatontown decided to take the law into their own hands. The singularity of the crime makes it interesting to the modern historian. But it also made it interesting to the people of its own time. The event was widely reported, as was the subsequent inquiry and court cases. To the modern eye, with the gift of distance, Johnson's guilt or innocence is of little relevance to the act of his murder. Lynching was not only a crime against an individual, but it must be seen as a crime against our society as a whole. The mob disregards society's laws. The issue of Samuel Johnson's guilt was presumed settled by his killers and by the general public at the time. His murderers also presumed that they were safe within their own community. Samuel Johnson was horrifically murdered and the people of Eatontown knew the men who were responsible. Nearly 100 citizens were called as witnesses in the inquest to his death. It was understood that many of those called Had had some part in his death, yet none would admit to their culpability nor accuse anyone else outright. The townspeople did not want his killers found and protected them in every way that they could. To some outside of Eatontown, the lynching was a mark of shame on all of New Jersey. The majority of people in Eatontown, however, felt otherwise and resisted any attempt to bring Johnston's killers to justice. The editor of the Eatontown Advertiser, Jacob Coffin, went so far as to publish an editorial detailing how opposed to the inquiry the people of Eatontown were and how, quote, they do not want those responsible pressed in court, end quote. Coffin was later charged with contempt of court for the editorial and was forced to apologize to avoid prosecution. James Steen and John Schwartz, the men responsible for pursuing the case during the coroner's inquiry, worked conscientiously despite negative responses from the public, including death threats. The inquest itself revealed a lot about the crime and the people of the town. The term lynching was unpopular, and during the inquest, the murder was referred to as quote, the fracas, or other less noxious and violent terms. That the inquest was anticipated to be a sham would be readily apparent to the people involved as one of the jurors showed up drunk and proceeded to play games with the rope that was used to hang Samuel Johnson. His fellow jurors playfully admonished him and he was allowed to continue to sit. This was indicative of how the men involved and the white community around them perceived the legal proceedings. Quote, The jury was polled and then smiled at it. The crowd smiled too. The only real grave persons in the room were the reporters. They did not fully appreciate at this stage of the case that the jury looked upon the investigation as an exquisite farce into which too much horseplay could not be injected to suit it. It did surprise some, however, when Constable Liebenthal was arrested. He had testified as to his actions on the night of the murder and was taken into custody based on that testimony. He had detailed how he had put Samuel Johnson in a cell and then gone to a local shop and remarked that he had questioned the safety of his prisoner. And then he headed home for the night. He was charged with negligence in not securing Johnson's safety. The next time he saw Samuel Johnson, he was hanging from the doorway of the holding cell, bloodied, beaten, and dead. The inquest came to a close on March 30, 1886. It was understood that many of those who had been called to testify had been involved in the murder. Yet when the verdict was read, it stated, quote, Mingo Jack was willfully murdered at Eatontown Lockup on March 5, 1886 by being beaten upon the head with clubs and by hanging by the neck, said blows and hanging having been done by some person or persons to the jury unknown, end quote. Samuel Johnson's death was established as a murder, but his killers remained free. In April of 1886, four local men were arrested and charged with his murder. It was estimated by one of the holding cell's neighbors that 40 to 60 people had been present at the murder on March 5, 1886. Yet these four men were the first arrested, based on new testimony from a local constable who claimed that one of the four, William Snedecker, had admitted his involvement in the crime on March 6, 1886. Based on Constable Roswell's testimony and corroborating testimony from other witnesses, the four men and several others had sworn a pact of secrecy. Two other men had warrants sworn out for their involvement, including a man named Joseph Anderson. Samuel Johnson had sworn out a warrant for Anderson's arrest after Anderson had whipped him two months earlier anderson left town before he could be arrested on the murder charge and was never captured when two of those arrested and charged johnson and dangler were released on bail eaton town reacted quote, there was much rejoicing here this evening and bonfires were burned in the public square and other places end quote. the charges against all suspects were eventually dropped with no one being held responsible for samuel johnson's death Later, the prosecutors and detectives had to sue Eatontown for payment of their bills. On March 24, 1887, the bills of Assistant Prosecutor Schwartz and Detective Irving incurred in the investigation over Mingo Jack, who was lynched at Eatontown a year ago, were finally paid by county collector Haight on that day. It cost the county at least $500 to contest them public sentiment had not changed in the six weeks since the murder. People still considered the act less than criminal and did not want the perpetrators held accountable. Of course, there were those in Eatontown who felt differently. African Americans living in Eatontown had a completely different experience. Unlike their white counterparts, they lived as a minority and they were afraid of the escalating violence. The mob that had shown up the holding cell had been more than 40 men, The morning after the murder, it was thought that virtually every resident of Eatontown had been by the cell to witness the handiwork of those 40 men. The building's door had been smashed with a 15-pound sledgehammer. Samuel Johnson had put up a ferocious fight to save his life. The men had broken into the cell to drag him out, and he had fought so fiercely that the fight had continued into the adjacent cell. Blood was everywhere. And it was assumed that Johnson had landed a few sharp blows of his own as he fought for his life. According to later testimony, he had prayed, and he had pleaded for his life. Two African-American families had homes not far, within earshot of the lockup. Both William Burford and Marshall Williams testified that they'd heard the arrival of the mob and, quote, Burford says he heard the voices of men talking in the neighborhood of the lockup about the same hour, but he did not look out of his house. He felt curious, but considered a lot safer to remain undercover, cover. These men no doubt understood what was happening and remained at home, quietly in their beds, hoping the mob would pass them by lynching was not a common occurrence in New Jersey, but it was common knowledge that in the South lynching and the mob mentality that it required was often contagious. These men and the African Americans beatenton town must have seen the situation as very dangerous and volatile. It's a testament to the African American community, that it immediately began to defend Samuel Johnson's innocence. Belief in his guilt had allowed the mob to form and commit heinous acts. When the dust settled, that belief had to be maintained to justify the killing and the further protection of his murderers. Defending Johnson was not a popular stance. Even the judge who oversaw the grand jury indictment of the case, quote, directed them to redeem their fair fame of county for law and order by making every effort to bring the criminals to justice, end quote was skewered in the press for making that statement. Almost immediately, the African-American people of Eatontown and the surrounding areas claimed Johnson's innocence and put forward another suspect. They maintained that Johnson did not own the clothing that he was described wearing in the attack. They also put forward evidence that another man who had a history of committing similar crimes had been seen in the vicinity of the attack on March 5th, 1886, in February of 1887, a man named Richard Carney, or Carney was arrested for killing a woman named Margaret Purcell in Elberon. Upon his arrest, quote, several intelligent colored men, assisted by a prominent Long Branch politician, have been trying ever since to prove the innocence of Mingo Jack and fix the guilt on the right person. They claim that for six months they have known Carney to be guilty, but have been in too great fear of him to make it public. Carney was confirmed this morning as the Negro who had assaulted several girls last summer at Fairhaven, end quote. On June 4th, 1886, Carney confessed to having assaulted Angelina Herbert. His confession was doubted by the people of Eatontown, particularly by the men suspected of lynching Samuel Johnson, saying, quote, that if Mingo Jack was really innocent, Miss Herbert was principally to blame for his untimely death, as she had positively identified him as the man who had assaulted her. Their principal reason for discrediting Carney's confession was the fact that Miss Herber never hinted that Carney was her ensalant, end quote. On the word of a sickly young woman who had just been brutally assaulted and raped and then injected with a heavy dose of morphine, Samuel Johnson was removed from his dinner table, locked up in a holding cell, and left defenseless in the night. He declared his innocence to the arresting constable, but offered no resistance. Instead, he went peacefully. The men who then murdered him justified their actions with his guilt, and when his guilt was questioned, they shifted the blame to the rape victim. The community of Eatontown was quietly split over this crime. The white population was primarily supportive of the lynching by protecting the murderers, and the black population lived in fear of both the lynching mob and the criminal they believed had assaulted Angelina Herbert. The crime faded into history, and no one was ever brought to justice for the killing of Samuel Johnson. Angelina Herbert was also a victim that day. A physically weak person, she never fully regained her health, Emotionally, one can only wonder at the impact, the assault, and the subsequent crime, inquest, and scandal made on her. When she died six years later on May thirteenth, 1892, the New York Times reported it. The entirety of the article was concerned with the attack on her and the murder of Samuel Johnson. There, the story of Samuel Mingo Jack Johnson rested for the public at large. His family had buried him and maintained his innocence. For them, no doubt, the pain of his loss would be great, and the story of his murder would be part of their history, shared generation to generation. For most in Eatontown in New Jersey, however, the story of Mingo Jack was not one that people wanted retold. It was an embarrassing chapter in the state's history, and it was rarely studied or mentioned. 2011 was the 125th anniversary of Samuel Johnson's death. Several local historians and students on Monmouth County folklore and history determined that the event should be commemorated, and they established the Mingo Jack Remembrance Committee, and they worked with the city of Eatontown to have a memorial plaque placed at the location of Johnson's murder. While many people were receptive to the memorial, some were not. James Stone, a local amateur historian and author of The Murder of Bingo Jack, initiated the movement to erect the marker, and he stated, quote, We did get resistance, but it was mostly behind the scenes. I was pulled aside by the Town Council and told that there were a number of people in Town who were strongly against the idea of promoting this story, and that they didn't understand why we would want to put up a memorial for it. But they never came to the meetings to voice that opinion. The murder of Samuel Johnson, despite being put aside and brushed under the rug, no doubt left a mark on its community. And this became part of the community that evolved from it. The personal stories of families and individuals merged, to become our collective community. Stone talks about an attempted interview with one of the accused murderer's descendants. Quote, I did contact one of the attacker's relatives. I was told that he had a lot of information on the story. He refused to tell me anything. He said he had put the Mingo Jack story to bed and would not discuss it. I think he had a certain amount of guilt over it, unquote. For years after the lynching, the small piece of land that once housed the Eatontown lockup was considered haunted. The screams of Samuel Johnson have been reported by locals and can be heard in the night. As time went by, these stories became broader and less detailed. But still, children and teenagers knew of the place now called Wampum Park, and thought it to be haunted ground. Those ghost tales, whether true or not, were a way of commemorating the death of Samuel Johnson. They are a way of acknowledging an injustice that had been done. Whether one believes Johnson was innocent or is convinced of his guilt, the sentence imposed upon him can hardly be deemed just. Guilt and discomfort over the murder of a man 125 years in the past still lingers. In September of 2012, Mayor Gerald Tarantolo of Eatontown helped erect a memorial to Samuel Johnson. It also stands as a reminder of the injustice that man is capable of and our responsibility to never forget that we must be vigilant against it. NewJersey.com reported the service, quote, Tarantolo publicly apologized to Johnson's ghost, as well as to those of Johnson's wife and family, quote, No man should ever be denied the civil rights granted to him by God. No man should be denied a fair trial. And no man should be subject to a goon mob. Perhaps the spirit of Samuel Johnson can rest easier now. Perhaps the conscience of Eatontown can as well. Yet as you drive through the streets of Shrewsbury and Eatontown, the names of those streets will be familiar. They're the same names that you find on trial transcripts the same names that you find in newspaper articles, the same names as the people who took justice into their hands and took away a man's life. Until we are finally able to lay to rest the specters of bias, prejudice, and hateful racism, they will continue to haunt us. Thank you for listening to Paranormal Tales from the Tower. This is Kathy Kelly. If you are interested in following us, please do so on Twitter at ParanormalNJ, on Facebook at Paranormal New Jersey, and on Instagram at The Paranormal Museum.